can turn to Exodus 32. We're going to continue our journey through the book of Exodus this morning, picking it up in chapter 32. Um, This weekend has been a a pretty fun time for my family. Friday was a really nice day. Loved it when the cold front came. The Jennings had a really nice Friday until dinner time, which is kind of common. That's kind of the witching hour in our home. Uh, My kids were out playing and they came home. We brought them home about five minutes before dinner. And my son wanted to watch a show for those five minutes before dinner was set. He always asked for that. And my wife, Julie, said, no, I'm, I'm about to serve dinner. You can't watch a show. And my son got very angry. He, he got very mad. He actually yelled at my wife. And so Julie, in a calm voice, said, Luke, you are in timeout. Go to your room. Now, all of this was very stressful because at that moment, I was working on Excel. And I hate Excel, but I, I have to watch over our finances for the charity we, that we, we run. And, and this is funny. I haven't tried to do like Excel calculations since I was an engineering student 20 years ago. And so I'm feeling all this anxiety trying to get it all to line up. And yet my son is screaming and he's yelling. And, and all of a sudden in the middle of this, once my son goes to his room, my wife calmly asked, Blake, can you come help me prepare dinner? And all of a sudden, before I could see what was happening, all that anxiety and stress, it welled up in me and I yelled at my wife. I said, no, I have to finish this. And, and so my wife, very calmly, good wife that she is, she said, Blake, you are in timeout. Go to our room. <laughs> and as I walked in my room, I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> what a hypocrite that I am that a moment ago, I'm thinking to myself, my son is a baby. Come on. Why can't you be mature? Why can't you grow up? And yet here I am. Who's the baby now? I have to walk to my room. I'm just as immature as him. Well, that is exactly what is going to happen to all of us this morning as we read Exodus 32. That is exactly what we're going to see, that we think that we're so much better than the Israelites, so much wiser than them, and yet we do exactly what they're going to do in this passage. So as you can tell from the title, this is about when the Israelites made a golden calf. And if you know anything about that story, uh, the Israelites make this little golden cow and they worship it. And to us, they look like idiots. I mean, really, they look foolish because if you've tracked kind of the story up to this point, literally a few weeks before this story, the one great God of heaven and earth, Yahweh, delivered them from Egypt in power. And you had like the 10 plagues and you had them parting the Red Sea. Remember that? Like he made the whole Red Sea stand aside so they could go through. And then he marched them to Sinai and he showed up on Mount Sinai and power and lightning and thunder. And he gave them the law. And actually they could look up at Mount Sinai right this moment during this story. And they could see the cloud of Yahweh up there. And yet they chose instead to make a little golden cow and worship it. And we look at that and think, how dumb are these people? Spoiler alert, we all all do this. We all make little golden calves. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about how we, just like Israel, are tempted to make idols. So I want to read to you uh, kind of the account of them making this idol. Let's pick it up at the beginning of chapter 32, the first six verses. 
Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down the mountain, he is up with God on Mount Sinai, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now what exactly are the Israelites doing here? Well, they're, they're making something that would have looked similar to this. It was actually a small statue of a, a young bull, a calf, made out of wood that then they covered in gold. It was like gold plated. Now, why did they choose the image of a calf or a bull? Well, in Egypt, a, a calf or a bull was a symbol of strength. And the Israelites had spent all of their lives, minus the last few months, in Egypt. And so that culture had rubbed off on them. So they saw calves or bulls as symbols of strength. And so they make this image. Now here is the key. This is really important to grasp. When they make this calf, they did not think that this calf was a different God than Yahweh. And you can tell that because they actually say, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And then notice in verse 5, Aaron says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That's Yahweh, to Yahweh. So they viewed this idol to be God, to be Yahweh. So what that means is that we have second commandment idolatry here rather than first commandment idolatry. I need to explain that to you because it's probably a new concept. You may not have realized that there are actually two different forms of idolatry in the world. One is outlawed by the first commandment. The other is outlawed by the second commandment. So what is first commandment idolatry? Well, that's typically what you think of with idolatry. God says, you shall have no other gods besides me. First commandment idolatry is worshiping other gods or things which are not gods. So in the ancient world, this is when they worshiped Baal or Asherah or Zeus. You're worshiping some other god to try to get whatever that god can offer you. Each god had something that he or she could give. In today's world, first commandment idolatry is when we worship something that is not God to find significance and satisfaction in life. So this is when we worship money or career or sex or fame. We are turning to those things to find something only God can provide. That's first commandment idolatry. That's not what's going on here. Because the Israelites are not trying to create a different God. They see this as Yahweh. They're committing second commandment idolatry. So let me remind you of the second commandment. Here it is. God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on earth beneath, or in the water under the earth, you shall not worship them or serve them. Well, 
A calf is fashioned like something on earth, a little cow. And, and they were worshiping this little cow as if it were Yahweh. And that sounds ridiculous. What are they doing? Well, let me explain to you what people were thinking in the ancient world when they made idols. This was a very common practice in the ancient world. Ancient people would make these beautiful little idol statues. Here's the key. They never believed the idol was their god. They're not dumb. They know that that little statue made out of wood or stone or metal. They know it's not a god. What they believed is is if you could make a beautiful enough idol, you could coax your god to live in it. That's the point of an idol. You get your God to live in your little idol house. Why? So that you can take him with you wherever you want to go. You can approach him whenever you want. And you can offer him little sacrifices so that maybe he will give you what you want. Did you notice that as soon as the idol's done, Aaron makes an altar in front of it so that they can offer a feast to their God? They can give him sacrifices. They can throw a big party. It appears to have been quite a rager. As best we can tell from Hebrew, they eat and they drink, and that rose up to play has sexual connotations. So they're doing all kinds of stuff to try to entice Yahweh to live in their little idol. Now, why do people do that? What is going on in, in this whole encounter? Well, ultimately, the point of all this is the Israelites are trying to treat Yahweh just like any other god. That's what it means to make a golden calf. You're trying to treat Yahweh just like any other god out there. Now, why would they do that? Why are they trying to reduce Yahweh from this great terrifying god of thunder and clouds and creation all the way to somebody living in this little golden idol? Well, the answer is simple. It's always what's behind second commandment idolatry. The reason they make a golden calf is they wanted a god they could control. They want a God they can control. When you look at what they're doing here, ultimately they want a God who would go where they want, when they want. And so far in the story, that's not what Yahweh had done. So far in the story, Yahweh called the shots. He told them where to go and when to go. And at this moment, they had been sitting in the desert at the foot of Mount Sinai waiting 40 days. Well, he's up on the mountain with Moses, and the desert's not a real pleasant place. They want to move on, but Yahweh won't listen to them. Yahweh won't do what they want. And so they make an idol so that literally they can pick it up and carry it to wherever they want to go. People want a God they can control, a God they can take wherever they want to go, whenever they want to go. So that's the first part of it. The second part of making this idol is they want a God who would bless them without placing obligations on them. Right before this account, 40 days earlier, Yahweh had shown up and given them the law. We talked about that. The law, all these commands, books of commands, things you can do, things you can't do. Idols don't make commands. Idols don't tell you what to do. Idols simply wait for you to put a little sacrifice on that nice little altar and throw them a raging enough party, and then they will give you what you want. That's what we want in our human hearts. 
We want a God who will bless us without placing obligations on us. Israel makes these, this golden calf because they want a God they can control. A God who will go where they want, when they want, and will bless them without placing obligations on them. And we have just described the predominant religion of America. If you, if you think about it for a moment, I think a lot of people misunderstand this. Most Americans believe in God. It's actually a very small percentage of Americans who are atheists. The vast majority believe in God, and for most of them, it's the golden calf God. Let me call it the Christian God, but the point is it's a God that they can control. It's a God who will bless them without placing obligations on them. A God who will go wherever they want to go, whenever they want to go there. Just sacrifice a, a little time, a little money, a little goodness to the God, and he or she will bless you however you desire. That's, that's the God of America. That's, that's the God of humanity. We want a God we can control, a God we can put boundaries around, that we can carry around with us wherever we want to go. Now, what about us? What about genuine Christians who have trusted in Jesus? You, you, you I hope, have, have believed that Jesus, the Son of God, died for your sins and rose from the dead to give you eternal life. You, you know the God of the Bible. You know that He is great. You know that He is sovereign. You know that He is awesome. He is your Savior. We just sang about that. So we know better than them, right? Well, not exactly. Our culture has rubbed off on us just as it had rubbed off on the Israelites. We are tempted to... Worship God as though he was our little golden calf. Let me give you some examples of how genuine believers turn God into a golden calf. First one, you are making God your golden calf if you give him Sundays, but the rest of the week belongs to you. So if, if your practice of Christianity is, well, God gets three hours on Sunday mornings, but the rest of the week is mine to do however I see fit. That's my time. God gets his time. I get my time. Well, you have just turned God into your golden calf because according to the Bible, God owns all your time. Every second of every minute of every hour of life you have on this planet belongs to God. He calls all the shots, not just the Sunday morning shots. He gets it all. But if you are seeking the Sunday morning blessings of God without the Monday through Saturday obligations of God, you have, by definition, created a golden calf. Second example of how we make a golden calf. If you give God a little money, whatever you feel you have to give him, but the the rest is for you to spend as you see fit on your needs and desires, you've turned God into a golden calf. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't spend money on things that you need and things that you desire. What it means is that you recognize, according to the Bible, God owns every dollar you will ever make. All of it is His. And so, first and foremost, you give everything to Him. We sang it earlier. You surrender all your money, all your wealth to Him to use as He sees fit. You give Him your first and your best. You seek to honor Him, to build His kingdom, to to care for people in need with your money, and then with whatever's left over, yeah, you can spend that on your needs and your desires. But if you give God only what you feel you must and view the rest as your own, you've made Him a golden calf. Here's a third example. If you obey God in public but sin without remorse in private, you have, by definition, made a golden calf. 
So if you look at your life and you say, well, God, he gets the public part of me. I'm going to be a good Christian when I'm out there in the world and people see me. But my private life, when no one sees it, I can do as I please. And so if you sin in private without remorse, without feeling guilty about it, without confessing it to God, without fighting that private sin, you have made God your golden calf. Because he said very clearly in the Bible, he gets all your public and private moments. He's the God of your whole life. He is to be obeyed as much in private as in public. Finally, it's kind of a summary of everything I've said so far. If you draw boundaries around what God gets in your life, you have, by definition, made him a golden calf. So let, let me illustrate this with a really significant quote. I love this quote. It's by Abraham Kuyper. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. If you read that quote and you say to yourself, sure, he can have it all except you just made a golden calf. If there's any except, then then that's a golden calf. You've drawn a limit around God. You've treated him as a finite deity, a deity in a box, a deity in a little statue who gets part of your life, but not all of your life. That's what it looks like to commit second commandment idolatry. And we all struggle with this. We all ultimately, in our heart of hearts, we want a God we can control, that we can limit, that we can draw boundaries around, a God who will bless us without putting obligations on us. We all want that, but when we look at this list, we realize, man, we we have all fallen to this form of idolatry. We have all struggled with this. This is true for all of us. So, we all struggle with idolatry with making God into golden calves. The Israelites made God a golden calf because they wanted what we all want, a God they can control. Let's see how it worked out for them. Made this little golden calf. How well did that go? Let's pick up the story again in chapter 32. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Let's skip down a bit. Skip to verse 19. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger burned and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. 
He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book, but go now. Lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. This is a pretty big sin. This is a second commandment kind of sin. You break one of the Ten Commandments, that's a big deal. And big sins carry big consequences. And so let's see how this story plays out. What consequences do they get for making a golden calf? Well, first, Moses rebukes their law-breaking by smashing those stone tablets with the law written on them. You might read that account and think, well, Moses is being rash here. He's losing his temper. No, actually not. This is a very thoughtful decision. Those stone tablets represent the Mosaic covenant. They have the law written on it. They had just broken the covenant. And so Moses publicly illustrates for them, this is what you've done. You've just broken the covenant. So the covenant will be restored, but they have broken it for a time. Second, Moses obliterates their idol. Kind of goes to extremes here, doesn't he? He burns it. Remember, it's wood in the center. He burns it, and he takes the ashes and remnants and and pulverizes them into powder, sprinkles them into the water, makes them drink it. Why does he do that? I don't want to get graphic here, but when you eat or drink something, it's going to come out, right? Yeah, when it comes out, mixed in human excrement, you have just defiled the material you use to make the idol. In the ancient world, they actually viewed that as a way to defile something. The deal is Moses knows they're fickle. If I leave the gold around, they're just going to be tempted. Next time I have something I got to go do to make another idol. So we are going to obliterate the raw material. And so by mixing that gold with poop. That is what's happening here. And leaving it in the desert, they will no longer be tempted to give in to idolatry. But here's the really sad irony. Where did all that gold come from? From Egypt. Remember, God wanted to reward his people for their years and years of unpaid slavery. And so he worked in the hearts of the Egyptians so that the Egyptians gave wealth, back pay, to the Israelites. So the Israelites leave Egypt rich with gold out of God's blessing. And now all that gold has been mixed with poop and left in the desert. That's what idolatry gets you. Takes the best parts of your life and mixes them with poop. So, Moses obliterates their idol. Third, Moses unleashes death. How does this play out? Well, Moses confronts Aaron. Aaron gives the lamest excuse I have ever read in the Bible. I just, the people were evil. They were were stubborn. I, I had to do it. I took their gold. I threw it in the fire. And boom, out jumped this 
calf. It reminds me of when my son um, in the past has run into our house screaming and crying um, because his sister punched him, to which sister says, well, daddy, I was just punching the air, pretending to box, and his face got in the way. (laughs) No, I was not born yesterday. That's not what happened. Aaron makes a similar excuse, but to Aaron's credit, he and the rest of the Levites, he was a Levite, they repent. So they return to the Lord. They, they admit that this idolatry was wrong. And then Moses, he calls the Levites to himself. And then he gives them swords and says, go carefully through the camp and kill anyone who will not repent. That's what's happening here. So they're going very carefully from one end of the camp to the other, seeing who will repent. And it doesn't matter if it's their brother, their father, their friend, their neighbor. Any person who will not repent dies on the spot. 3,000 Israelites die. So Moses unleashes death. Finally, God sends a plague. That's what it means when it says that God smote them. We don't know how many people died. We don't know what exactly the plague was. We just know that God punished them. And the point of all this is that making golden calves is costly. You make this golden calf because you think it'll get you what you want in life. You think that it'll make your life turn out better than it would otherwise. And yet golden calves in the end always hurt us. They always take away what we love. They always hurt the people in our lives around us. I'll give you a couple examples from our list earlier. The man who honors God in public, but in private, he does whatever he wants. And so a common example, a man who in public, he's a godly Christian man, but in private, he he watches pornography and he never feels any remorse over it. Why? Because everyone's doing it. Who cares? It's not that big a deal. Why should God care about that? It's my thing in private. I'm not hurting anybody. And so he watches it without remorse. Well, what happens to him? Well, we know from the, from the research, he's going to become addicted to it. And it's going to end up hurting his marriage and hurting his kids and hurting the world because it drives an oppressive industry. He's going to bring pain in his life and in the lives of those he loves. That's always how it works out. And yet that is a common failure that so many Christians have fallen into. This is incredibly common. I saw statistics this week that among Protestant Christians in America, 42% say that God actually now approves of pornography. 51% say that he approves of premarital sex. No, he doesn't. The Bible is really clear. What's going on? Well, people want a golden calf God. They want a God who will bless them without putting obligations on them. And so they worship this kind of God. They, they give him their public life, but not their private life. And it always goes bad in the end. It always ends up hurting them and the people that they love. Here's a second example for you. Parents who give God a couple hours every other Sunday, but the rest of their time is theirs. It's real common in America. We look at statistics. That's how most people practice Christianity. I'll go to church every other week, but that's all that I'll do for God. He gets that part. Well, the problem is if you're a parent, your kids see that. Your, your kids see that to you, God is really quite small. He's worth two hours every other week. And, and if, if God is small in the eyes of your kids, then when it gets hard in their life to follow God, when, when they're ridiculed for following God, well, that God's really small. Why should they suffer ridicule for following God like that? They'll just walk away from the faith entirely. Parents who make golden calves bring a curse on their children. Idolatry always hurts us and those we love. And so what do you do if you have made God your golden calf? Well, first of all, recognize we've all done that. I've done that. 
You've done that. We've all done that. Be like the Levites and repent. If you've treated God like he's small, like you can put boundaries around him, like you can put him in a box, repent of that, confess that, God, you are not my little golden calf. You own all things. Everything in the universe belongs to you, including all of my life, all of my thoughts, all of my actions, all of my money, all of my time. It is all yours. I surrender all of it to you. I'm so sorry for making a golden calf. Please, God, obliterate my idols. Pray that God would do that in your life. Confess that to him and he will forgive because our God is gracious. And that's the third part of this story that we want to look at this morning. God's saving idolaters because God doesn't give up on us when we make little golden calves. So let's go back to the part of the passage that we skipped. Go back to chapter 32 verse 9. 32 verse 9, really significant, challenging part of this passage, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you've brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people." Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. This is a pretty remarkable account. Here's how it plays out. First, God tells Moses he intends to give the people justice. God intends to give the people what they deserve. They broke the second commandment. And the law was really clear. You break one of those big commandments, you die. That that is justice. That's what justice looks like. Now I want to clarify. When God is saying he's going to give them justice here, he's saying death, not hell. Death, not hell. Remember how salvation works. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, salvation is always by faith alone, not by obedience. The moment that you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you receive eternal life as a free gift that you can never lose. Even if you fall into idolatry later in your life, you can't lose that eternal life. Once saved, always saved. So God is not threatening to cast the Israelites into hell. No, they were saved the same way that you were. By a moment in time to trust in Yahweh as their Savior. What he's threatening to do is put them to death on the spot. Exactly as the law demanded. They should die in this moment. But Moses intercedes. Moses prays. Moses pleads with God. Please, don't give them justice. Give them mercy. Please, God, remember your promises to Abraham. God, think about your reputation, what the Egyptians will say if all these people die here in the wilderness, what they'll think about you. Please, God, give them mercy instead of justice. I think the key here that that I see is, is Moses didn't give up on the people. I mean, Moses didn't give in to this sin. 
He was up with God on the mountain and and the people, they've sinned so much by this point in time. They're so ungrateful. They're so evil in their heart and yet Moses doesn't give up on them. He doesn't say, yeah, God, I'm tired of this. Please just wipe them off and let's start over. He doesn't give up on them. He pleads for them. And then the truly remarkable part of the story, God relents and gives them mercy. And it's really clear in the Hebrew, he is repenting. God does repent in scripture. It means he changes his mind. He had planned on doing one thing and instead he does another thing. Now, the question everyone wants to know, what do you do with that theologically? What do you do with the fact that we have a sovereign, omniscient God? Omniscient means he knows all things past, present, and future. Sovereign means he has all authority in heaven and earth. He does as he pleases. What do you do with a sovereign, omniscient God changing his mind? Uh, There's a lot of answers given in commentaries. My answer is simple. I don't know. I don't. I I don't know the mind of God. I don't know how the mind of God works. What I know is that the text is very clear. Moses interceded and God changed his mind. God chose to give them mercy instead of justice. That's, That's the reality. And actually it's something that happens often in Scripture. This is by no means the only place. It's a common theme in Scripture. Another one that's really astounding to me is the book of Jonah. If you know the story, God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell the Ninevites, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In other words, in 40 days I'm wiping out this city. And if you know what the Ninevites do, they repent. From the king all the way down to the lowest of the poor, they all repent before God. They pray, they, they dress in sackcloth, they fast, they repent before God, hoping he'll change his mind. And he does. We're told explicitly he changes his mind. He relents of the harm that he would do. And guess who doesn't like that? Jonah. Jonah was not a fan of God changing his mind because Jonah hated the Ninevites. He hated them. He wanted them to be destroyed. And so after God changes his mind, here's what Jonah says. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish instead of going to Nineveh. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Our God loves to change his mind from justice to mercy. And he invites us to pray for that. Our prayers somehow matter to the plan of God. I don't know how to explain that. I just know that it's true. When you pray for the lost, when you pray for the sinners, God hears that and acts on that prayer. And so please never stop praying for the lost for the prodigal, for the sinner, no matter how far gone they seem. This passage, it gives me such hope. It gives me such purpose in my life. Because when I look out at the world and I see so many people who seem so far from God, so sinful, so evil, I know they're not too far gone. Why? Because we have a God who loves to show mercy instead of justice. 
We have a God who wants them to be saved. I pray this verse all the time. 1 Timothy 2, first of all then, I urge that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanks be offered on behalf of all people, even for kings and all those who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Such prayer for all is good and welcome before God our Savior, since he wants all people to be saved. And to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants them to be saved. And so pray that God would get what God wants. The salvation of all people. I think this passage is incredibly important to read regularly. In the political climate we're living in right now. When you think about Trump. Do you realize what God wants for him? Above all else. Salvation. And he wants you to pray for that. When you think of Pelosi. Do you know what God wants above all for her right now? salvation. And he wants you to pray for that above all else. That's what God wants for all people. And so God invites us to intercede like Moses did, to pray without ceasing for the lost and the prodigal, for those who are far from God, knowing that God cares about that. And somehow our prayers change the plan of God. And I don't know how to explain that theologically. I don't know how to fit together the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity. That is way above my pay grade. What I know is that God hears our prayers for the lost and sometimes chooses to act on them and to give grace and mercy instead of justice. And so let's pray without ceasing for the lost, for the sinful, for the prodigals, for those who are far from God. Let's pray, let's beg God to get what God wants for them, salvation. And let's pray that God would use us to share that good news with them. You may recall our big idea for this semester is helping every neighbor come to find and follow Jesus. We want to reach every neighbor in this town, every person in our lives. So you might recall I gave you a map early in this semester. We called it our every neighbor map. It had all the circles, four circles. And the goal of that map was was to write 12 names, 12 people in your life, people where you live, so they live around you, people where you work, people where you study, people where you or your kids play, We wanted you to write those names, so 12 names, and begin to pray for them. Pray that God would save them. Pray that God would have mercy upon them. I want to remind you to do that. I want to challenge you, if you've forgotten that, please pick that back up again. If you didn't get that Every Neighbor tool, there are extra ones um, in the foyer. Please go get them and fill it out with those 12 names. Pray for those people that God would save them. This morning, I want to give you a new tool to help you go further. So if you're on the end of an aisle, look under your seat. There's blue cards. Please take one and pass them down. Take one card and pass it down. Your next tool is a list of sample questions. Why am I giving you a list of sample questions? Because we tend to get scared when when a pastor challenges us, hey, I want you to have a conversation with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, we freak out and think, oh my gosh, I'm not ready for that. I could be ready to share the gospel and explain all these theological things. No, 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 no. I, I want you to begin to have conversations with the people on your list, these people who don't know Jesus, and the conversations can be really simple. I just want you to ask some questions and get to know them. That's it. I, I want you to be fascinated with them. Get to know who they are and what they care about. And so this list of questions, the basic idea here is is these questions help you move from external to internal to eternal. 
What I mean by that, external questions are really easy to ask. No one bats an eye. An external question for students is, what's your major? External question for adults is, what do you do for a living? That's it. Super easy. Not totally non-threatening question. Those are where you start. Super easy questions. Then you move to internal. Internal is getting at their heart, at what they desire. So if it's a student and you just ask them, what's your major? The internal question would be, why did you pick it? You're getting at, what are your desires? A deeper internal question is, what do you hope to do with that major? So you move from external to internal, and as you do that, what you're praying for is you're looking for a way for God to transition it to eternal. So eternal are questions about forever. They're questions about God. They're questions about right and wrong. They're questions about what makes a person significant. So if, if you have, so if you're talking to an adult who's in a job, does that job make you happy? What would it take to make you happy, do you feel like? If, if, you, could, if you dreamed it, what would life be like if it was perfect? What would that be? You're just asking them to speak to you. That, that's an eternal kind of question. You're getting at their conception of the ideal life. Well, that, that's a transition point for you to be able to share what you think of the ideal life is. You see, you're just asking easy questions that lead into deeper questions that give you an opportunity to be a light for this person so that they can hear the good news about Jesus. So I'm giving you this card, not just to stick in the back of your Bible and forget about it. I'm giving you this as a tool. I want you to take your every neighbor map where you wrote out the names of people near you who don't yet know Jesus. I want you to pray for all those people this week that God would get what God wants for them, their salvation. And then I want you to pray that God would use you to to start a conversation with one of them asking some of these questions. Lots of questions there. Whichever ones help you, use those questions. Or or if they're not on the list, you'd like them. Whatever you'd like to do, start into a conversation this week so that God can use you to share the good news of our Savior with someone who doesn't yet know him. I want you to join with me in prayer now. We're going to pray for these people on our list that God would have mercy on them. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who abounds in mercy, that you are compassionate, that you are slow to anger, that you are abounding in loving kindness. We praise you that you are our Savior. We praise you, Jesus, that you died for all people, for all time. You died for all sin. Lord God, we praise you that you want all people to come to know your Son and be saved. We, we don't know how all the theology works, but we know that that's true. And so we beg you, God, that you would get what you want in the lives of all the people around us, that they would come to know Jesus that you would save them, that you would, that you would break the walls that keep them from trusting in you, that you would humble them, that you would help them to see how much they need you. We pray, God, that you would break their idols that they're clinging to so that they would cling to you instead. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would save them and we pray that you would use us towards that. We pray that you would help us to be bold and courageous. Help each and every one of us in this room to pray devotedly this week for the people on our list. Help us to pray that they would be saved. And then I pray for every one of us in this room that we would have an opportunity this week to have a significant conversation with at least one of them. Help us to be bold and and courageous and selfless and ask these questions. Help us to get to know them genuinely and lovingly. Give us skill. Give us authenticity, God. Help us to really love them. I pray that the conversations would blossom and grow and we would be able to talk about internal things and eternal things and that Jesus would come out and that the gospel would be clear. 
We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would work through us to save many. We praise you and we thank you for the kind of God that you are. We repent and we confess that so often we take you who are mighty and sovereign and loving and stupendous and we try to reduce you into a little golden calf on our shelf that we can control. That, that we can get blessed without obeying your obligations. We, we confess that to you, God, that we've so often been tempted to make you into our little golden calf. Please break us of that. Help us to stop drawing boundaries around what you get in our lives. Help us to surrender everything that we are and have to you at all times. Help us, God, to see you as huge and mighty and wonderful. I pray that we would bow our lives and surrender and humility before you, not just for two hours on Sunday, but for every minute of every day of the week. I pray, God, that you would, that you would draw us close to you, that you would help us to walk faithfully with you, and that you would use us to share your good news with the lost and the sinful and the prodigals out there who you desperately want to save. Thank you that you are a God of love and salvation. We praise you, Yahweh, our great and mighty Savior. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Be a light this week. Remember to pray for the people on your list.